welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 26, Germany on Hold. So we're back at it again, my friends, and today we're going to be covering Germany in between the end of Julius Caesar's campaign in 51 BC and the disaster right on the Rhine in 16 BC. So, last off, we ended with the German tribesmen fighting for the Romans and actually turning the tide against the Gauls, who were on their last big attempt to establish their own freedom. Again, so sorry about that. After this, the Germans, Gaul, the West, really, falls to the wayside in the records. Just for a little bit. It's not because they're not doing anything. By all means, the Germans, the Gauls, the British, they're still pretty active. But it's because Rome is turning into itself. It's focusing internally, and there's a good reason for this. Now, if you don't know your Roman history, then here's some quick notes to get you up to speed. Caesar takes his army after defeating the Gauls and establishing his control in the region. He takes his army, he marches across the Rubicon River in 48 BC. Now, the reason why he had to do this was because the Senate wanted him to give up his power, and he realized that it was pretty much now or never. Now, crossing this river was something that no Roman general was supposed to do. It's seen as a threat to Rome. No army is supposed to cross the Rubicon. So by doing this, he declared himself against the Senate and started a very long civil war. On one side, we have Caesar and the Populares, and on the other side, we have the Senate and Pompey's supporters. And this war will see Caesar going throughout the Republic and the client kingdoms in the East and restoring order, but also establishing control as dictator. This will end with the Battle of Munda in Spain in 45 BC. Most of his enemies are either dead or they're effectively under his thumb and unable to offer resistance. Now, with Caesar's victory, he was expected to take more and more power and control. And he does do this. He goes from being a dictator for 10 years to being dictator for life. However, Caesar still has this public image and he refuses to take a crown, despite the several times it's offered to him. And even though he refuses it, the fact that he becomes dictator for life and the fact that he's continuously offered the crown causes many senators to worry that Caesar will eventually say yes, and he will become the new king. So, like, I don't know, most uh, senators of the time, they decide to kill Caesar. But they had to do it quickly, because Caesar is about to leave to go conquer Parthia, out in the east. Still not really dealing with Germany at this point. They attack him on the 15th of March, also known as the Ides of March, in 44 BC. He dies. And with his death, well, we have a new civil war break out. 
as Mark Antony, Caesar's friend and usual second-in-command, with the grand-nephew of Caesar, Gaius Octavius, on one side, uniting the lower classes against the other side, which is made up of these senators who are trying to restore their control of the Republic. However, the senators lose this second civil war, and the Republic is dead. Instead, we have this semi-empire built up, but split into two halves. Antony controls the east, and Octavian controls the west. And while both are consolidating power in their regions, Octavian is the one who gains control of Rome. And he's eventually able to eliminate most of Mark Antony's remaining friends by getting Rome to declare war on Egypt and Antony's mistress, Cleopatra. Now, Antony immediately backs Egypt, which allows for Octavian to declare him a traitor and completely oust his support from Rome. And so we have a third civil war breakout between Mark Antony and his supporters based in Egypt and Octavian's who's based in Rome. This war begins in 32 BC and it ends with Antony and his wife Cleopatra committing suicide and leaving Egypt to be annexed by Octavian. Going back to Rome, Octavian consolidates his power, and in 27 BC, he is named Augustus, and he becomes the first Roman emperor, and he ends a century of civil war, but also, for us, 21 years of intense turmoil. Now, if you're a Roman historian or a fanatic, this very short blip covering three civil wars and the transformation of the Republic to an empire was probably criminal. It's just way too short. And for that, I do apologize. But go check out a podcast on Rome for that story. We just want to know what's going on in Germany and in, to explain why we don't have much on Germany in these 20 some odd years I had to tell you just a little bit of what's going on in Rome why our sources have gone dark because of this madness because of three civil wars because of this changing government Germany sort of disappears we'll get blips every once in a while but writers don't care as much about what's happening on the far side of the Rhine when their own towns are scenes of battles so Unfortunately, we don't know a lot of what's going on in Germania. What we do know, or at least we can argue because we don't have any evidence contrary to it, is that the Germans aren't invading Gaul. There aren't any major invasions, or at least reported invasions, in the region after Caesar quelled the last revolt. And the next time they're mentioned... It's not even until 13 years after that. So, let's say this is the history. Let's say there is no major involvement of the Germans in Gaul for the next 13 years. Why is that? Why are the Germans not taking this advantage 
of a clearly distracted Rome. Well, one theory is that the Germans were just extremely wary of doing another invasion of Gaul after the disasters from the previous attempts. Caesar had crushed their last few attempts and had punished them so severely that there was a fear among the tribes that they just didn't want to risk another invasion, not for the price that they would possibly have to pay. Another possibility leans more towards what we saw with Caesar's last campaign in Gaul, and that the German tribesmen are working for the Romans. They're serving as auxiliary troops in the Civil War, and they're getting enough loot and trade that it's keeping the tribes happy enough to maintain the peace. And as we mentioned last episode, of course, German mercenaries had become a part of the Roman army. And there's little doubt that Caesar and his successors do not call on the tribes time and time again to produce warriors to go fight the Senate, especially when half of their typically available troops are fighting against them. Now, sure, yes, these German mercenaries are not going to be near as loyal as your traditional legions, but they're cheaper. And they have proven themselves time and time again to be quite skilled at what they do. Now we do know that many Germans from Augustus' time and from Caesar's time, they become deeply ingrained in Roman life. And so we're sure this is still going on. We can see this in the slaves that are mentioned captured in war. They'll be serving the Roman masters. We have mentions of bodyguards, including imperial bodyguards to Augustus, that are German. We have hostages, these noble family members who are given to the Romans to maintain the peace, and they'll be raised and trained in Roman ways, like one Cheruscan by the name of Arminius. Now, Germany is still there, and in fact, In 25 BC, Germany hasn't been forgotten at all. It's just been put on hold. Back to our timeline. Augustus Caesar has consolidated his power. This new emperor decides that it's time to expand Rome a bit. And so he looks at the closest border to the capital. The Alps. Only about 450 miles lie from the heart of the empire to this border. Now, to be fair, the Alps do serve as a formidable barrier to invasions. They're mountains. However, these mountains are a double-edged sword because they also blind the Romans from threats on the far side. Now, we've discussed this, of course, in previous episodes. The Romans developed a system to deal with this issue, in which they have allied tribes controlling the passes on the far side, and they would act as the eyes and the ears for the Romans. Now, Caesar had this on the Rhine as well, with the Ubi. With them as allies, they could keep an eye out for possible threats to the Romans, send word back to Caesar, and Caesar could prepare for it. As we saw, Ubi weren't very good at it. In fact, they had to plead with Caesar to let them stick around because they had failed a couple of times 
uh, and warning that there was a possible invasion. But with the Alps, this has been going on for a long time. We saw this as part of the process during the Cimbri Wars. Well, under Augustus, he's decided that it no longer needs to be this system. And so he invades the Alps, and he establishes colonies such as Aosta. These colonies would be settlements for veteran troops from the three previous civil wars who need to have a place to stay. This gives Augustus the land he needs to make these loyal but also very deadly warriors happy, and it replaces maybe really loyal, maybe questionably loyal allies with extremely loyal ex-soldiers who will definitely want to be keeping an eye out to make sure there are no threats coming towards them and can defend themselves. So, starting in 25 BC, Augustus invades the Alps. He starts wiping out former allies and old enemies who are sold into slavery, which will boost the economy, make the Roman citizens happy, and overall just make them look really great. And also get him the land he needs for these veterans that we've mentioned. Overall, a great move for Augustus. And so, he consolidates his power in the Alps. He gets the land he needs. He shows that, hey, I'm just as good as my uncle. Now, I can settle this land. We can fortify it. We don't have to worry about threats anymore at this border. So what's the next border? We've solidified the Alps. Where do we turn next? Well, the Rhine, of course, and the Danube, the extensions to this Alpine border. The Rhine and the Danube formed an inverted triangle that cut into the Roman Empire. And just like the Alps, the Rhine and the Danube were a decent barrier, but also had their flaws that allowed the enemy to take advantage of Roman weakness. So, Augustus turns his eyes to these two rivers, and decides that, like the Alps, these need to be reinforced. However, while the Romans were conquering and settling in the mountains, we see of a military presence on the rivers, on the far side of the rivers. Colonies are not the forerunners in this case, but forts, campaign staging areas, supply depots. All of these are what we're seeing being built on the far side of the Rhine in the Danube. Eventually, these forts have been expanded to the point that by 16 BC, there were enough campaign bases to launch an invasion into Germania. Now we're going to pause here for a second because I want to talk about something that we're going to come back to for the next several episodes. There is a debate among historians on whether or not the Rhine border was Augustus's true idea for the border. What I mean is Did Augustus really want to expand past the Rhine and establish 
more provinces in Germania? Or did he want to pacify just beyond the Rhine, establish some defenses, and secure the Rhine as the permanent border for quote-unquote civilization? And we can see evidence to both sides. Augustus prepared an invasion. Maybe he wanted to conquer this land. Augustus didn't put that much effort into it. Maybe he just wanted to secure his borders. I'm not going to say it's one way or the other, because frankly, we don't know what was going on in Augustus's mind. He could have easily flip-flopped between the two. I'll leave it up to you, but I wanted to mention this now, because it will be part of the next several episodes. By the time we reach when the Romans are back on their side of the Rhine permanently, then we'll talk a lot about it a little bit more. I'll give you my ideas, but I don't want to influence, or at least try to avoid influencing you. I don't want to influence your opinion. I want you to listen to the story, to the facts, and form your own ideas. So, I'll try my best to avoid being biased, and I won't give you any inkling of my opinion until the story has ended. Okay, so, back to the discussion. We have large campaign bases being set up with several legions established along the Rhine. They're either to keep the peace or to prepare for future campaigns. Meanwhile, while this has all been going on, and actually before this, a man by the name of Marcus Agrippa had been sent out by Octavian and then Augustus to improve Gaul. Well, that's the simplest term we could use. It's also completely wrong when I say improve Gaul. He was modifying Gaul to match what the Romans thought was improvements. So, building up the road connections eliminating possible threats, hopefully through diplomacy and any other means necessary. Overall, it's to bring Gaul completely into the fold as a Roman province. Now, if you'd like to learn more about this fascinating subject of Gaul pretty much being overtaken by Rome and being forced to change, I suggest listening to the French History Podcast. They have an interesting episode discussing this transformation that Gaul is forced to go through. And it is forced upon it. Anyway, sorry, I keep, I keep getting distracted. I apologize. Another thing that Agrippa does is that he formally establishes provinces... In Gaul. Now Gaul gets theirs, but for us, this is where we finally get Germania on a map as part of Rome. This is Belgium and the land touching the Rhine. Belgium is turned into Germania Inferior, and the Rhine to the Alps which would be the Rhine south of Belgium, is turned into Germania Superior. Now, before, all you Germania Superiors that thumbing your nose at Belgium, Superior simply meant that it was closer to Rome. 
That's just how it worked. I know, kind of makes the Romans seem big-headed, but that's how they named their provinces. The significant thing for us is that outside of the Germania provinces being formed, of course, that's big for us because, hey, we're on the map, but it's that Gaul is no longer a frontier for Rome. It is now to become an integral part of the empire, which makes the Rhine the official border for this empire, the focus for the military and the defense of the empire. So, by 16 BC, we have these massive forts. We have campaign bases set up all across the Rhine. We have the Alps being systematically conquered and colonized. And we have Gaul being Romanized, being forced to change against its will to become a part of the empire. Now, do you think the German tribes are doing absolutely nothing? That this entire time they've just been sitting there going, huh, that's interesting. Wow. Oh, that's, that's a nice fort they're building there. Oh, wow, they're getting closer. It's a little scary. We're not going to do anything about it. We'll just sit here. No, the Germans aren't just sitting there. In 38 BC, this is before Augustus is fighting Antony, Agrippa receives a request from the Ubi. I've mentioned them earlier in this episode. The Ubi, these are the Caesar's most loyal allies in his campaigns. You can bet that even with his death, they haven't switched sides. But the request from the Ubi is that the Romans take in their tribe and allow them to establish a home on the Roman side of the Rhine because their enemies, including the Suevi, are threatening to overrun them. The Ubi, Rome's ally who they should be protecting, is having to run for their life. This is part of the problem with Rome being distracted. They can't help their allies like they're supposed to. And because of their relationship with Rome... Agrippa agrees to it. And so the Ubi cross to the Roman side, they'll settle, they'll establish themselves a nice little colony. Now, for Rome, it proves that their worries about the Rhine and the buildup of the fences, well, there's a legitimate issue. Their system of allies controlling the far side of the Rhine to act as their eyes and ears, well, it can't work if the allies are running into the Romans to hide. They're not on the right side of the river to be the eyes and the ears. So you can't rely on the system like you did in the Alps. Something's got to change. Problems are further proven when the Romans are putting down a rebellion in Belgium in 29 BC. As the Romans are putting down this rebellion, they find out that not only are they fighting the Gauls and uh, the Belgians, but they're also having to fight the Suevi, the thorn in Caesar's side. Yeah, apparently they've been sending over mercenaries to try to establish some sort of control in Roman territory. That's, that's a big no-no for the Romans. And the Suevi just simply retreat across the river to safety. So, again, for the Romans... It's proven the Rhine's going to be a problem. They have to establish some sort of control if they're going to avoid 
this constant threat of rebellions from the Gauls who are getting support from the Germans. A final example that we can look at in the years leading up to 16 BC is actually on the Danube, on the other side of the Alps. There we get reports of invasions by Germanic tribes that are barely repulsed, and even so there's little warning of them coming. It seems the Danube doesn't have the same system as the Alps. It is suffering the same problems as the Rhine. There's little warning. There's little chance for the Romans to prepare. And so when these attacks hit, the Romans have to quickly adapt or they lose. So the Alpine system can't work. The Germans are stirring up rebellion. Yeah, it's time for Augustus to start defending the territory, start building up forts, become his own eyes and ears. And so, over the next couple years, up to 16 BC, we see Rome prepared. They are either prepared to defend themselves or to expand and push further into Germania. Now, the reason why I keep mentioning 16 BC is not because this is when Augustus stands, looks at his legions and says, Go forth, invade Germania. Bring them to their knees. No. That's not why this date is so important to us right now. What happens in 16 BC? Well, it could have been a minor blimp in history. It could have been just something that we would just be like, Oh, hey, by the way, this happened. Nah. Didn't change anything. That's how minor it could have been. But, of course, it's not. These Roman forts, they're built, they're established on the far side of the Rhine. But some are put in friendly territory, territory controlled by the Allies. And some are put into hostile territory. Territory that would be owned by the Swaby... Uh, this Gombri, you know, these tribes that have been a constant menace to the Romans. And while the friendly territories might be happy that you're there, think, yeah, we can do some trade, we can give you some troops, we'll help you set up, you're probably not going to get the same welcoming in the hostile territory. I know, surprising. And this, of course, will lead to hostile relationships where there's very little trade, Local support is virtually non-existent. And of course, violence is always on the cusp of erupting. And so, this is what happens in 16 BC. In the early part of the year, in the lands of the Sagambri, and yes, if you're trying to remember, this is the same tribe that raided the Gauls and then attacked Caesar's supplies after receiving an invitation to attack Gaul. Well, the Sagambri have a fort in their territory, and a group of Roman soldiers from this fort are caught and then executed by a group of quote-unquote hot-headed warriors. And these warriors, they pat themselves on the back, they got rid of some of these troublesome Romans, and they turn around and go home 
And they start telling everybody about it. Like, hey, hey, you remember the, some of those Romans we've seen? Yeah, they're dead. Here, here's their shield. Oh, and here's a sword. Well, the leader of the Sigambri, uh, by the name of Melo, he realizes that the tribe's in a little bit of big trouble. This tribe, or actually it's a combination of three tribes, if you remember, well, they knew the price of crossing the Romans. And Milo's warriors had just gone way too far to negotiate with the Romans. So, as soon as these warriors come in, start bragging about the Romans they just killed, well, Milo goes, <laughs> Crap. Welp. Our days are numbered. And for a penny... And for a pound. And so he gathers the entire tribe and he launches an attack on the Romans. Figures, you know what? It's too late to negotiate. Might as well do what we can to force the Romans to talk to us. And so they attack on the far side of the Rhine, surprising the Roman troops who had just kind of learned about the execution. Now, the Roman frontier commander at the time was Marcus Lullis. And he kind of scoffs at the Sugambri. Apparently to him, the Sugambri were nothing that he couldn't handle. They're puh. Who cares that Caesar said they had the best cavalry and they kind of made him look a little foolish during the Gallic campaigns. Who cares about that? I can handle them. And so Marcus gathers the one legion he has near him instead of waiting for the several legions that were on their way towards him. He gathers this one legion, the 5th, and he gathers some local auxiliary cavalry, and he goes out to go find this Gombri, put them down, end them before word has even reached Augustus about this breach of the peace. And while he's marching his men towards the Rhine, well, Mello crosses the Rhine, believing that he needs to destroy the local Roman defenses before they could gather strength from the other legions he knows are on their way. And he doesn't know that Marcus is obliging him by marching straight at him with his smaller force. And so the auxiliary cavalry, whom are scouting ahead, run into the Zagambri, are ambushed, and then routed. And they retreat right back to the Romans who are marching have no idea what's going on ahead of them. So the Romans, who are almost to the Rhine, are all of a sudden surprised when their own cavalry comes rushing out of the forest right at them. They have no chance to get information. They are completely disorganized as their own allies run through them. And then right behind them is the Sugambri, who are like, oh, hey, well, here are the Romans, let's keep going. And the 5th Legion is routed and it loses its eagle standard. The most prized possession of the legion is lost to the German tribes. And so Marcus and the remnants of the 5th run away and regroup further inside Gaul, surrendering that portion of the Rhine to the Sugambri. Now he decides, okay, maybe I should wait. Yeah, I'll wait. And so he waits for the rest of the legions to show up. 
However, Marcus's hope of keeping this quiet is over. And a slightly panicked Augustus quickly leaves Rome, heading straight to Gaul to deal with this situation that could threaten to upturn everything he and his uncle has done. And next week, we will discuss the reaction to the fist's near annihilation and the final moments leading up to Rome's decision to invade Germania. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please rate and comment on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever database you use. If you'd like to support the show, please go to our website, www.podcastonjeremy.com, where there is a donate page. The funds go to maintain the database, the website, purchasing new books, and other projects. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next Tuesday.